All right, good morning, everybody. It is a joy to see you all here today. And may the Lord bless you and give you His grace as you draw near to worship Him. And if you are watching us via live stream, we're glad to have you with us as well. One quick thing I want to mention uh, to you is that um, is, uh, this is specifically for those who are, uh, have, are parents and have children up in the nursery or children's church, uh, and or for those of you who, are, who serve on Sunday mornings up in the children's wing. I did send an email out, I think a couple days ago, um, providing some, uh, some details and instructions about changes we're making. Uh, about how we, on March, I think, 19th, we'll be moving ahead and making some changes where we're moving from having four people serving on Sunday mornings down to three. Um, if so if you have received that email and you haven't read through it yet, please make sure that you read through that and read it carefully. Uh, if you, uh, if this is uh, some news that, uh, that is pertinent to you, but you did not receive the email, please let me know, and I can make sure that I get that to you. And if you have any questions at all, uh, please see me, and I'd be happy to, uh, to address any questions or any concerns you might have. Uh, well, uh, typically we'll uh, start with a call to worship. It will begin, but I sort of, uh, I kind of feel led to just begin our time with the word, of course, but also just open us up in a word of prayer as well as we transition to worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ. We are gathered together. It's another week where we are having a family reunion to uh, worship the Lord Jesus Christ and draw near to Him and make much of Him and be reminded of the great gospel of our salvation. So let me open us up with our call to worship, which is in Psalm 3, and then we'll pray. Psalm 3 says, O Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and a lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God. For you strike all my enemies on the cheek, you break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. Let's pray. Lord, we draw near to you this morning to proclaim that salvation belongs to the Lord. Lord, there are temptations, there are things that cause us distress, there is anxiety, there is affliction, there is suffering, and these things have sunk their teeth into our hearts, Lord. God, we come before you to the one who can shatter the teeth of calamity and distress. We come to the one who rescues us, the one who lifts our head, the one who is our shield, the one who is our glory. And we desire for your encouragement, for your strength, And we desire more joy in our salvation. So help us, Lord, this morning by the power of your Spirit to proclaim that salvation belongs to you. And even as we sing, as we pray, as we sit under your word, God, that your blessing would be upon us this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. 
Let's stand together and worship God with the song Hallelujah for the Cross as we get this tiny, wonderful glimpse of what it will be like to worship God together in eternity. sacrifice in our place. Through the cross, those who believe are offered forgiveness. So let's sing about that.
Therefore, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father.
Lord, we come to you, all of us. We are, we are yours. We pray that we would live in that way, that we would praise you every day, that we would live in light of eternity and the resurrection that you offer. You are so good. Your steadfast love endures forever. Amen. You may be seated, and the kids uh, may be dismissed to their children's church. Isaiah 62, verse 11 to 12. Behold, the Lord has proclaimed to the end of the earth, say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your salvation comes. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. And they shall be called the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord, and you shall be called, sought out, a city not forsaken. Amen. Let's go to the Lord and let's pray. Lord, we stand here today proclaiming that your salvation has indeed come. And that salvation has come in the person of Jesus Christ, our precious Savior. We who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ. We who were once strangers to the covenants of promise and without hope and without God in the world, we have been reconciled to God through the blood of Jesus Christ. So that a people who were once not your people are now called your people. Those who were not beloved are now called beloved. And today we are called sons and daughters of the living God. Lord, you have sought us out, and you have found us, and you have redeemed us. And so, Lord, we just, we, we gather, we come together this morning to direct our praises upward for all that you have graciously done for us. And through the cross, Lord, you have made a way for us so that we can come to you. And Father, we pray and ask that you might help us, Lord, to continue to fix our eyes on the Lord Jesus. Help us to not look over our shoulder, to not turn around, to not look back, to not even take a step backwards, Lord, and so that we might not be tempted and lured away by the things of this world or by sin or temptation. Lord, forgive us for those times that we look back. We fail to apprehend the preciousness of Christ, the preciousness of the gospel.
Lord, we want to live as your people. We want to rejoice in the gospel. We want to celebrate the forgiveness of sin that we have in Christ. Lord, as we have sung earlier, let us not settle for the crumbs of this world and where there is so much great treasure and possessions in the person of Christ. Let us not be a people who are easily satisfied with the things that the world has to offer, for there are eternal pleasures at the right hand of Christ. So would you help us each day to find our satisfaction and joy and contentment in him? Lord, you have called us a city that is not forsaken. We are a redeemed people. We are a people who belong to you. Help us to continue to celebrate and rejoice, to live as your citizens of this heavenly city that you have created through the gospel. And we're thankful that in Jesus, all of our sins are paid for. And that we do not bear them anymore. And this is what characterizes citizens of this heavenly city. Father, we turn our attention to our, uh, to our, our, our brother and sister, Ron and Nancy Giantini. Lord, we pray, Father, that you would help them to be a salt and light to those around them. Especially, Lord, to their son and their grandsons. Father, we pray for those opportunities to share the gospel. Father, we pray. We pray for their salvation. We pray, Lord, that you would graciously draw them to Christ, that they might be saved. Lord, please give Ron and Nancy peace and comfort as they sail through their unique challenges. Lord, in the, in the mental and emotional burden that they carry, Lord, would you lighten that load and stabilize the ground beneath them. Help them to continue to look to Jesus Christ as their precious Savior and from him draw the strength that they need for each day. Lord, we pray for Wayne and Chantone. Lord, we pray that you would strengthen their relationship in Christ, that they might seek you diligently each day. We pray for Chantone's health, that you would graciously care for her and strengthen her each day. God, we pray for Chantone's children. God, we pray that you would graciously make them citizens of this heavenly city that you have created in the gospel that you would please lovingly and caringly draw them to Christ, that they might be saved. Father, we pray for those who are, are suffering, who are in a season of trial, who have endured affliction and hardships. Lord, remind them of your deep and ever-abiding precious love. even while their afflictions and suffering might tell them, might try to persuade them that they are forsaken, that they have been abandoned, that there is no God, that there is no God who cares for them. Lord, 
ground them in the assurance of your word. Your word sets differently. Your word speaks into those afflictions and sufferings. Your word interprets our emotions so that we can understand who you are, so that we can have confidence and have peace even in the midst of trials. For while our trials say one thing, your word is what speaks the truth. And your word says that your people are not abandoned, that they are not forsaken, but that they are loved, that they are cared for by a precious Savior who went to the cross to die for them. Lord, encourage your people with these truths. And we pray, Lord, that you would lighten their affliction, that you would change their circumstances, and that you would grant your servants peace. Father, we pray for the Kragnalis as they continue to minister to people in Africa. Lord, what a joy it is that even as we direct our prayers upward, Lord, that you hear us and you listen to us, and we pray, God, that you would turn our prayers to blessings, that you would shower upon them in their ministry, that you would encourage them, that you would strengthen them, that you would give them wisdom as they care for many needs, as they heal the sick and mend broken bones. Lord, would you also help them to lovingly and caringly administer the medicine of the gospel to those souls that are damaged and ravaged by sin. So they might see Jesus as the doctor and the healer of their souls and their hearts. Lord, we pray that you would bless their ministry, bless their home, their marriage, and that you would continue to graciously provide for all of their needs. Lord, would you help us as your people to continue to proclaim the preciousness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray that you would cause the city that you have created to swell with more and more people who are coming into the kingdom of the beloved Son through faith in Jesus Christ. We pray, God, for a glorious salvation. We pray for an, an emboldening of saints. To continue to proclaim the wonderful Savior. Father, we pray also for our country, and we pray specifically for the many pregnancy centers scattered across our nation many of which are, are targets of, of cruelty. Father, we pray, for, we pray for those who are in authority, who are turning a blind eye to the villainous attacks that these sinners are continuously being objects of. We pray, Father, that you would even remove such individuals from authority and power and replace them with those who would administer justice. For you have given people to these kind of positions to administer justice. Father, we pray for these centers for those who work in these centers, Lord, that you would encourage them, that you would protect them as they continue to do this good work. 
And lastly, Father, we pray. We pray for those in our midst who are who are studying for degrees or certificates, for those who are studying in school. Lord, help them to first and foremost be students of your precious word, that they might excel in knowing the will of the Lord. And Lord, help them to apply their knowledge, understanding, their skills to their, their subjects, to their courses of study, Help them to learn to memorize, to take tests, to write. Lord, that even in their studies, Lord, that this might be all to your glory. Lord, education and studying and learning is a stewardship. Would you help your people, your children, to be good stewards of their learning and their subjects and their education? And that it might be to the glory of God and to the good of others. So, Father, we entrust all of these things to you. And so we pray also this morning the prayer that you have taught us to pray in the scriptures. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. This morning we are in Acts chapter 2. So if you would please turn there with me. Acts chapter 2, verse 37 to 41. We are concluding... Peter's sermon during Pentecost. Acts chapter 2, verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we pray to you this morning. Lord, we come to worship you through song. We come to worship you through prayer. We come to worship you through fellowship. We come to worship you through the word. Lord, for some here, for perhaps many, there are so many obstacles, so many distractions, so many challenges to the receiving of your word.
and even for myself. And the preaching of your word. Lord, would you shatter the distractions? Would you remove the obstacles that prevent us from worshiping you through the word? Lord, would you help me to, to preach the glory of the gospel and the preciousness of Christ? And would you help us, would you help your, your people your children to receive your word. Would you help those who have yet to call upon Jesus as Savior to embrace him today as their Lord? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The Puritan minister and biographer Samuel Clark had once written an account concerning William Perkins about a time when a condemned criminal was walking up to the gallows and you can tell that this man, understandably, was, was terrified. He was visibly terrified of what was coming and what was coming for him after his death. And William Perkins cries out to the man and says, What's the matter with thee? Are thou afraid of death? <laughs> what a question. He says, Come down again, man, and thou shalt see what God's grace will do to strengthen thee. The man is allowed to come down, and he goes to William Perkins, and William Perkins prays with a condemned criminal hand in hand. And William Perkins begins to say this prayer of confession of sins. And the, the, the criminal's terror at death transitioned to this, to this conviction of sin. His joys, his tears of terror, rather, became tears over his agony, over his sins. And Perkins sensed this, this terror in this man, and he proceeded to then present the gospel through prayer. And Samuel Clark writes that the prisoner's eyes were opened to see how the black lines of all his sins were crossed and canceled with the red lines of his crucified Savior's precious blood so graciously applying it to his wounded conscience as made him break out into new showers of tears for joy of the inward consolation he found. And then the prisoner cheerfully walks back up to the gallows, and as he's doing so, he's testifying of the salvation in Christ's blood. And he is said to bore his death with patience, as if he actually saw himself delivered from the hell which he feared before, and heaven opened for receiving of his soul to the great rejoicing of the beholders. That is the power of the gospel. To turn this tears of anguish and terror to tears of joy, this man came to see that he heaven, even though whatever sins he committed that was deserving of this punishment, he still went with joy, knowing that there was actually something better waiting for him after his death. The audience that Peter preached to during Pentecost, you could say, felt similarly. 
as if they were at the very gates of hell, wounded in conscience, as Peter presents the gospel to them. But he doesn't present the gospel without also intending to give to them the cure for their conscience. As we consider the end of this sermon, there are a few things to consider. First, first, wounded caringly. Even as you consider the, this account of William Perkins in this criminal, you could see that there was there sort of this, this, this wound that came through this prayer of the confession of sins. So in this way, you could say the criminal was wounded in his conscience, but he was wounded caringly in the same way Peter presents the gospel to his listeners. And then it says in verse 37, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Verse 40, with many other words, there's certainly many other things. This, Peter's sermon was longer than what's recorded here. With many other words, he exhorted them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So you've been following along with us. Then surely or hopefully remember that Peter has made the case that these are the last days. This is the messianic age. And one of the visible signs of the age is the pouring out of the Spirit of God upon believers, which is evidenced by the speaking in tongues. And then Peter goes on to present the gospel. He testifies to the identity of Jesus Christ using Scripture powerfully and persuasively to point that, to the fact that Jesus Christ is God's Messiah. And testifying to the reality that God has made Jesus his Son, the Lord of all. And he connects this to the passage in Joel, and he essentially asks, well, how do we know that God, that Jesus has been made Lord of all? Because Jesus is the one who has sent his spirit into the world to testify to the reality that he is the Lord and that the world has entered or transitioned into the messianic age. And at this message, it tells us that the listeners were cut to the heart. You don't see those, that, those words anywhere else in the scriptures. It was a deep, penetrating wound. It was a most profound wound. As they listened to the words of Peter, oftentimes the preaching of the gospel is the anvil upon which God fabricates swords and spears with which he uses to cut to the heart of sinners with the intention of drawing them to Christ. And as an aside... Consider how the Apostle Peter preaches the gospel he uses is the Word of God, which shows that he knows his audience. And with the Word of God, he tried to persuade them to understand and know that Jesus is the Lord, that Jesus is the Son of God, that Jesus is the Messiah. And while I think some understanding of different evangelistic programs and systems that are out there can be helpful, it is much better to understand the people that we're talking to. It is much better to understand the person that we desire to know the Lord, to understand their life, to understand who they are. You see a different tactic when you move on later 
in the book of Acts when the apostle Paul preaches the gospel in the Areopagus to philosophizers. Right? He didn't begin with the word of God because they didn't know the word. Instead, he points to this unknown God that they worship, and he says, let me tell you about this God. So for someone who, say, is careless in their sin, right, you, might be, you might point them right, to the judgment that is coming and how the Lord will count every deeds of man and hold them accountable. For someone who is a hedonist, for someone who lives a life of pleasure, who is after another high, after another, after another, you might take some cues from, say, the book of Ecclesiastes and point to the vanity of living one's life for the pursuit of pleasure and the emptiness that it ultimately leads to. Or to the one who is, say, agnostic, you might point them, well, let me tell you about the God who has revealed himself not only in nature, but has revealed himself in the Word. Praying that the Lord gives us wisdom and discernment to know how to wonderfully and accurately and persuasively and wisely present the gospel. But all in all, at the end of the day, we must be in agreement that the gospel is not intended to massage the heart of man and make them feel more comfortable with their sin, but instead the gospel is intended to put some pressure, some tension, some knots into his heart so that he might feel some anguish and distress and a high degree of uncomfortableness so that he may run to the precious Savior who can save him from what their sins deserve. Peter says, save yourselves from this crooked generation. What he says there most likely he takes from Deuteronomy 32.5 where it says, speaking of the people of God, it says there they have dealt corruptly with him. They're no longer his children because they are blemished. They are a crooked and twisted generation. Psalm 78, 8, I think, clarifies what Peter means here and what Deuteronomy also intends to communicate. It says, speaking to the people of God, again, that they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. A couple of weeks ago, I referenced that very passage. Well, what Peter says here, save yourself from this crooked generation, and I broadened the definition of that to include really just any generation that is without God. It's not totally wrong, but I think a better way to interpret the passage is how is Peter speaking directly to his audience. When we consider Psalm 78, Deuteronomy 32, the passage are speaking specifically to the Jews. And Peter is saying, to the Jews, this is a crooked and twisted generation. Save yourselves from that. Save yourselves from those who have been rebellious towards God, who have been stubborn towards God, who are not faithful to God, to the God who has revealed himself in the word, the God who has revealed himself through the exodus and many signs and wonders. So Peter, I think, specific, or is directly speaking to the generation that is before his own very eyes. Scholars say that 
Jerusalem would have been swelling with anywhere between 55 to 200,000 people coming together to celebrate the Feast of Weeks. And Peter is here calling people to listen to his words and save themselves the gospel of Jesus Christ. And thankfully, many of them do respond. They say, brothers, what shall we do? It's one of the best questions in the entire Bible. Coming on the heels of hearing the gospel, brothers, what shall we do? What do we do? We pray for that kind of response as well when we hear the gospel. Or someone might say, what do we do? And he says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the Holy Spirit, the gift of the Holy Spirit. Repent and be baptized. We might expect Peter to say, believe, or put your trust in, have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Instead, he says, repent and be baptized. Now, certainly, Peter is not advocating for a works-based salvation, but faith is embedded in repentance, because repentance is not just a turning from something to something else, but repentance is turning away from sin, turning away from temptation, it is turning away from the world, it is turning away from one's idols and turning to a person, namely Jesus Christ. It is not just a turning of a part of the person, but no, repentance requires the whole turning of the person. Because what the gospel addresses is a severe misalignment of the heart. Like a car that is severely misaligned will tend to go to the right or to the left so that you're constantly sort of fighting against the car and keeping the car straight because it wants to go to the left or right. The gospel says that the heart, the human heart, is misaligned. It is not turned towards God, but it is turned in a different direction. But the gospel provides a necessary alignment so that the person can turn straight to the Lord in faith and repentance. It says later, those who received his word were baptized. Received his word is synonymous to believing. Received his word is synonymous to accepting Jesus Christ as Lord. Many hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, but there are iron gates of unbelief that prevent the gospel finding acceptance and being received in the heart. Receiving the gospel is opening those iron doors to the home of your heart and welcoming Jesus into your life. But listen carefully, it's not about receiving Jesus primarily as a friend or as a brother, or as an encourager, or as a helper, though Jesus is those things for sure, and much more. But receiving Jesus is first and foremost about receiving him as Lord. Only when he is first and foremost Lord of your life can he be the greatest friend to sinners, the greatest brother to sinners, the greatest encourager to sinners, the greatest strengthener of sinners. 
So to repent is to turn to Jesus first and foremost as Lord. And we know it's because this is the case that Peter was trying to make, that Jesus is the Lord. He's been made the Lord of all by the God in heaven. So he says, repent and be baptized. Be baptized. If you have been through members' class, then you'll know that we don't believe here that baptism means salvation. We don't believe that baptism results in the forgiveness of sins. But baptism simply communicates a solidarity with Christ, that you are identifying with Jesus Christ. I mean, just look at Romans 6, where there is a, a death with Christ, submerged under the waters, raised to new life in Christ, being out of the waters. It is an identifying mark of the Christian when they received baptism because they are saying to all those who witness that they are now identifying with Jesus Christ. It is an expression of one's faith in Christ. First Peter says that baptism corresponds to the flood where the world was submerged, saved from Noah, the man of faith along with his family, and that this is an appeal to God for good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. There's also the reason why right, we here baptize by immersion. We don't believe in baptism of infants because how can they make an appeal to God for good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ when they have yet to understand what that even means? Even John Calvin, who I love and the church is in great debt through this work in ministry, has himself said Baptism, because it is nothing else but a sealing of those good things which we have by Christ, that they may be established in our consciences. Amen. Totally agree. And yet Calvin baptizes infants, which I think goes against with what he says there. Baptism is intended to be expression of one's faith. In Christ, hence why Peter exhorts them, repent and be baptized. Turn your life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ and receive baptism as a way of identifying with Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. So Peter presents the gospel, and they are cut to the heart. They're wounded in their heart. They're wounded in their conscience but they're wounded caringly because Peter does not want any of them to perish in their sins. Secondly, healed graciously. Verse 38, again, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Repentance and faith are two sides of the same coin, so that the person who is said to have faith is said to have repented, and the person who is said to have repented is said to also have had faith in the Lordship of Jesus Christ. He says, repent and be baptized, 
every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. And even this implies faith. And how so? Matthew 9, 2, many of you are familiar with the story of the paralytic who's brought to Jesus. Matthew 9, 2, Behold, some people brought to Jesus a paralytic lying on a bed, and when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and went home. Why did Jesus tell this man that your sins are forgiven? It could not have been because this man believed Jesus to be simply a miracle worker or just a healer. But Jesus must have said this because he saw the man's faith and he, to some degree, believed that Jesus must have been the Messiah, the anointed of God, which resulted in his being forgiven of his sins. To which the scribes had some things to say. You don't have the authority to forgive sins. And Jesus says, oh, really? Well, which is easier to say to the man? Your sins are forgiven or rise up and walk? Well, let me prove to you that I have the authority to forgive sins. Man, take up your bed and go home. And he gets up, takes up his bed, and he goes home. To believe in the name of Jesus Christ, to repent in the name of Jesus Christ, means that you are believing in the authority of Jesus Christ, the only one who has the authority to forgive sin. So that if Jesus says that your sins are forgiven, then your sins indeed are forgiven. What is faith but submitting your life to Christ as your highest authority? And with his authority, he says, your sins are forgiven. Now consider for a moment, again, his audience. Who is he directly speaking to? He's speaking to the Jews. He has spoken about how Jesus Christ is the Lord, and he has said to them, you crucified him. And then consider what he says afterwards, that you your sins can be forgiven. That even your sin of handing Jesus to lawless men to be crucified, even, of, even your sin of crying out for the crucifixion of Jesus, even that sin can be forgiven if you submit to Jesus Christ as Lord. I doubt that anyone here has ever committed a sin more grievous than actually handing Jesus over for crucifixion. And if even their sins can be forgiven, then how much more than our, that our sins can be forgiven in Christ and that are forgiven in Christ? Now, even though we weren't there, even though we didn't have this direct hand or this direct involvement in handing Jesus over to crucifixion and crying out for his crucifixion. Nevertheless, our sins do contribute to the necessity of the cross 
Because if there were no sin in the world, that there would be no need for Jesus to be crucified. So certainly our sins contribute to the necessity of the crucifixion. That is why we sing, my sin, or behold the man upon a cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was all accomplished. Every one of our sins contributed to the necessity of the cross, and every one of those sins Jesus carried upon himself, the sin of lust, greed, envy, adultery, cheating, lying, whatever it is, you name it, Jesus took all of those sins upon himself. Even the Greek mythical titan who called Atlas, who was condemned to carrying the weight of the heavens upon his shoulders, even that titan could not bear the weight that Jesus had to carry and carrying all of our sins upon himself. As he made his way to the cursed hill of his crucifixion, each step harder to carry or to take as he carried that incredible amount of weight, each breath harder to breathe as he continued inching closer and closer to that hill where he would be crucified. And to have that weight multiplied, having the face of God turned away. And it's Jesus who took on all of our sins upon himself and died there on the cross. So that we can also sing today, my sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, was nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh my soul. Jesus took it all upon himself so that today we no longer carry the weight of that sin. So that whatever sin you have done yesterday or even this very morning or whatever sin you might commit later on or tomorrow or the next week, that they're all that have been paid for through the blood of Jesus Christ. So there is no longer any condemnation. There's no longer any more punishment for us because Jesus took it all. <clears throat> Excuse me. He says, and you will receive the Holy Spirit with this forgiveness of your sins. Forgiveness of your sins results in receiving the gift of the Holy Spirit. You cannot have the gift of the Holy Spirit without having your sins forgiven. And what the Holy Spirit does, it brings us to God and reconciles us to the Lord. When someone stands before a judge and they are acquitted of all their crimes and they are declared innocent and let go, right, there's, no, there's no relationship there with the judge. The judge most likely probably does not have any relationship or know the person personally. But with Christ Jesus being the Lord, 
and Christ Jesus also given the authority to execute judgment, what it means then to have your sins forgiven and receive the Holy Spirit of God as a result is that this judge over our sins also becomes our elder brother, our dearest friend. Through the Holy Spirit, we're invited into relationship with the one who is Lord and judge of all. We're welcomed as a family member. Peter gives this passage in Joel, and we saw when we got to that passage that this is mainly speaking about the gift of the Holy Spirit, which is access to God, communication with the Lord, being able to pray to the Lord, and knowledge of the Lord. Which is evidenced here in this passage, in this moment, in salvation history, as speaking of tongues, and he points them to that very passage, and he says, essentially, do you want this gift? Do you want to be able to have access to the Lord? Do you want to be able to, have to pray to the Lord? Do you want to be able to know the Lord? Something, these benefits that were only available to certain individuals in the past, now is made available to all who call upon Jesus as Lord. Do you want this? Then repent and turn to the Lord, and you will receive the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And he says that this promise is for you, and for your children, and for all who are far off. Three thousand souls are saved through the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That might not seem like a lot if we consider that there might have been 55 to 200,000 people swelling there in Jerusalem, but 3,000 is 3,000. That's still a lot of people who previously did not have salvation, who previously did not know the Lord, who previously were condemned to eternal punishment, now receive the blessings of the forgiveness of their sins and salvation in Christ Jesus. And Peter goes on to say, this promise is not just for you, but it is for your children. Many of the Jews who were here today and believed in this gospel would have gone back to their families. And something that's strange for us today is that the faith of the father would also have been the faith of his family, so that whatever God that the father worshipped would have been the same God that the family would also worship. So then that means that certainly more than 3,000 people would have been saved as people, particularly men, husbands, fathers, went back home, proclaimed to their families, let me tell you about what I have seen, about what I have heard, and what I have received. And they also would have embraced Jesus as their Lord as well. Peter says, this promise is for you and your families. They too can receive the Spirit of God by calling to the Lord Jesus as their Lord and Savior. And for all who are afar off. This could mean Gentiles as well. It could mean that. Though I don't think it actually means Gentiles, I think he means diaspora Jews, or Jews who are still scattered abroad, only because later on, it wasn't until later on in the book of Acts that Peter finally has this category of Gentiles also coming to believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ, right, with the, with the dream that he has, and then sent to Cornelius, a Gentile and centurion, which results in the first church coming to the recognition 
an acceptance that salvation has come to the Gentiles as well. Nevertheless, we don't need this passage to convince us that the gospel is for Gentiles. We saw earlier in the last couple of sermons that the gospel is certainly for Gentiles. So Peter administers the healing balm of the gospel to these to this wounded conscience, and they receive it, and they are saved. Three thousand are saved. The power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It takes us third and lastly to saved lovingly. As we consider the end of this sermon, what are some things that you can take with you? Consider again with me the, the condemned criminal who found salvation just moments before he was executed. Consider the 3,000 souls who did not have salvation before and in this moment received salvation through the gospel of Jesus Christ, of having their consciences healed through the gospel of Christ. There is nothing greater in all the world than having your sins forgiven, surpassing riches, surpassing entertainment, surpassing the pleasures of this life, surpassing worldly and earthly achievements and accomplishments. Nothing surpasses the joy of having your sins forgiven in Christ. Nothing. And that only comes with the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. With that being said, take heart. Your sins and my sins have been forgiven through Christ. Romans 4, 7 says, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sins. Your sins are no longer counted against you. You have been set free from them. They've been paid for by the blood of Jesus Christ. As we consider what's happening here in this passage, in this cutting of the heart, we see how the gospel penetrated into the conscience. And that's something for us to consider. According to the Puritans, the conscience is a universal aspect of human nature by which God has established his authority in the soul for men to judge themselves rationally. Again, the conscience is a universal aspect of human nature by which God has established his authority in the soul of men to judge themselves rationally. Right, so if you feel conviction, if you do something wrong, if you commit sin and you feel a sense of guilt, of remorse, of regret, of shame, perhaps if they lead you to tears, praise the Lord. It means your conscience is working as it should. The scriptures have a category, a category for the seared or the, or the hardened conscience, and that is a conscience that does not feel guilt or any kind of sense of shame or regret or sorrow for, th- for wrongdoing. In fact, it could even be quite the opposite, that they feel a sense of pleasure and even a sense of celebration in doing the things that ought, what not, ought not to be done. Now, thankfully... If you 
have believed in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's, that, doesn't, that doesn't describe you. Because the gospel recalibrates the conscience so they can understand what is right and wrong and rejoice in doing what is right and feel a sense of conviction in doing wrong. But that being the case, we still must be careful and make sure that we do all that we can and ought to do to make sure that our conscience is not desensitized to those things that are right and good, to those things that are wrong and sin and evil. Like a house in winter when there is no fire in the fireplace, it will only get colder and colder. In the same way, we have to keep the fire going in our hearts and maintaining a sensitive conscience, continuing to put wood into the fire to keep it warm and sensitized. And how do we do this? A good conscience is based upon Christ, but it is guarded by obedience. But before we get to obedience, before we get to that, first and foremost, you need to keep your heart grounded in the love of Christ for assurance. Listen to the words of the, the beloved Apostle John as he writes to the church. In 1 John 2.1, he says, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. So that even when you do sin, your assurance comes from the fact that you have a permanent advocate who is always pleading your case before the throne of grace. So that every time that we sin, Jesus is his perpetual advocate reminding us that it's been paid for. It's been paid for. It's been paid for. It's been paid for. Every single one of them. The sins of yesterday. The sins of this moment. The sins of tomorrow. All paid for. And from that we have the assurance of the love of Christ. And working from that foundation, then we can go on to guard our conscience by obedience. That's how you maintain the fire and keep it warm. First John 2, 5, the Apostle John continues. He says, whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. This is not about earning the love of God, but this is about maintaining right relationship. It says, truly the love of God is perfected in those who keep the word of God. That keeping the word of God gives us a greater and greater sense of assurance of the love of God. And how do we know that someone is walking in the love of God when they are walking in obedience unto the Lord? It is obedience that guards our conscience and keeps our conscience from becoming too desensitized by the things of the world. And obedience is necessary, not for salvation, but for maintaining right relationship with God. Peter preaches the gospel. Many are cut to the heart, and as a result, they run to Christ. They submit to his lordship. They receive the love of God in their hearts through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. So 3,000 souls 
experience the joy of having their sins forgiven. As we consider this passage, we consider what's going on here. Let us be encouraged to believe in the power of the gospel. Let us be encouraged to know that this is what the gospel can produce if we will only believe and trust. Right? We are an impediment to our own gospel proclamation when we fail to believe that Jesus can save through the gospel. Well, let this event encourage you and strengthen you. And let us pray that many upon many more will experience the joy of having their sins forgiven in Christ. But we have response. Let us go to the Lord this morning and let us take communion together. If you haven't done so yet, we have these small cups in the back table. Welcome to grab one of those. The Lord Jesus gave the bread and the cup to his church, to those who have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. And we don't believe about anything mystical about this, about this bread and cup. We don't believe that this is what actually saves us or results in the forgiveness of our sins. We don't believe that this actually becomes the body and blood of Jesus Christ. But this is simply something that the Lord has given to his church as a tangible reminder of the death of Jesus Christ on behalf of sinners. This is intended to be a way that the scriptures say that we proclaim the Lord's death until Jesus one day returns. And so we take this, even as we take this, we are reminded of the flesh of Jesus Christ that was bruised and broken as he carried the weight of our sins and bore the punishment that our sins deserved. As we take the cup, we are reminded of the precious blood of Jesus Christ that was shed on our behalf for the forgiveness of our sins. This simply points us to a spiritual reality, and that is the death of Jesus Christ on behalf of sinners. So if you're here this morning and you have believed in the gospel of Jesus Christ, you have submitted your life to the lordship of Jesus you are, your life is characterized by the repentance, a turning away from the world, and a turning, a constant turning, a constant of Jesus Christ. And if you have received the baptism, then you are invited to take this meal as a brother and sister in Christ. The scriptures have made this clear that this is considered to be a meal for those who belong to the household of Jesus Christ by faith. But even as we take this meal together, know that no one is judging you, no one is criticizing you for not taking it with us or looking at you as some kind of outsider. But even as we take this meal, we, we just lovingly ask for you to consider the gospel of Jesus Christ, to consider having your sins forgiven, to consider becoming a part of the family of the household of God. We want you to experience the joy of having your sins forgiven. We want you to experience the joy of having eternal life in Christ. We want you to be spared of the judgment that your sins deserve. Just as it was a moment of salvation for the criminal who was only moments from going to the gallows, this 
today could be your moment of salvation. If you would just simply confess your sins before the Lord and submit to his lordship. I'm going to read to us a passage of scripture, and then we'll take the bread, and by another passage of scripture, we'll take the cup, we'll conclude with a prayer, and then we will finish with one more song and benediction. 1 Corinthians 11.23 says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let us take this together and take a moment of silent reflection to reflect on what Christ has done for us. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is a new covenant of my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance as of me. For as you, often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Amen. This is the blood of Jesus Christ shed for you for the forgiveness of your sins. Let us take this together. Lord Jesus, your great grace abounds towards sinners. Lord, we're thankful that your mercy and grace always outpaces our sins. We thank you, Lord, that the well of your grace and mercy never runs out. We can continually draw from that well the grace and mercy we need in our time of need. Lord, help us to rest in the assurance that our sins are forgiven. Lord, help us to rejoice that our sins are forgiven. And Lord, help us to walk in the peace and the assurance and the joy that comes from the forgiveness of sins. Help us to walk in a manner that pleases you, not because we desire, not because we are earning your love, but because we have been loved and have received your love through Christ. We pray that the love of God may be perfected in us by our walking in the ways that you have called us to according to your word. Lord, we trust you for these things. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together and sing of God's lavish grace and the great peace that he provides.
Father, what a joy it is to sing of the magnitude of your grace, to sing of your amazing love for sinners. Lord, we thank you for calling us as saints, for calling us your dear children. Lord, we rejoice in these things. We take pride in knowing that this is how you identify us. Lord, it is our joy and it is our honor to be called your beloved children. Lord, may we continue to sing all of our days of your great grace and love towards us. And we pray and hope that Jesus Christ may have been glorified and honored in our time together. Receive our praises, Lord Jesus, we pray in your name. Amen. Receive this benediction from Ephesians 3:17. May Christ dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth, length, and height, and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Amen. Let God bless you and keep you, and you are dismissed.